The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take a personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Stock Take. My name is Gaurav Sodhi. Joining me today is founder, editor, what else do you do? Around dog's body. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fun guy. The only person wearing a shirt. On most. I, I, in fact, I don't think I've ever seen you in anything but one of your trademark shirts, Sean. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I can change it now if you want. Uh, no, and that's okay. <laughs> that's, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's a video. Oh, yeah, we should remember that. <laughs> Uh, Nick, Nick is always also here. Good day, Nick. Hi, Gaurav. Hi, John. Now there are two other actors um, behind the scenes. One is is famously Nick's um, Nick's filing cabinet, which has not made an appearance for a little while. But yeah. someone who has been missing and he's back now is our yeah. producer Steph. So hi, hi Steph. Um, yeah. For those who don't hi, know, Steph. Who John's the founder of the business. Nick and I are analysts. We do a lot of the the hard work, but the person who actually runs the show is Steph. So if you have uh, complaints or big grand strategy ideas, that's the boss right there. Now, gentlemen, um, John, I loved an article that you wrote last week about Appen. Um, it's a stock that we've discussed in the past, we've covered in the past, and um, I liked it because it uh, it neatly summarizes and displays how right we've been on it for a long time. I mean, it was a difficult stock um, for us yeah. for a while because it just kept on going up when we were relentlessly negative on it mm. and, um, and coming back to the stock as you did without any hubris but with an intellectual bent with an analytical bent I thought that was interesting tell us first of all why should we be interested in Appen now other than as fodder for a victory lap and then we'll move on to some of the things you've been looking at mm. well I don't think there's any reason for a victory lap here because in reality it wasn't a difficult thing to pick i think what we were fighting internally was the the relentless media coverage and the inclusion of appen in the so-called waxer stocks yep. or yep. wax stocks which was a, a notional technology index acronym for these high quality businesses which appen quite obviously wasn't a high quality business in the likes of Zero or Altium and other stocks that we've had on the buy list in the past, it was clearly different. And and that was that fact was quite evident by the fact that they have one million contractors on their payroll. And any business that has one million contractors is probably not a tech stock in the mm -hmm. manner of Zero or Altium or any of the other stocks. So there was this narrative bias that was running in the media. And running in investors who I think were fairly inexperienced. And that's what we were fighting. So we only wrote one story on it, which was Graham, just describing why we thought it was a bad business. And now the stock has fallen 97%. And and we we wrote this up not to not to run a victory lap, but just to use it as a proxy for how these themes in stocks can push prices to ridiculous levels. And to give people an indication of the warning signs when that starts to happen so they can avoid them in the future. So I think I think as a case study in to avoid these narrative stocks, I think it's really useful. As as a potential investment at yeah. this point, probably not so much. Nick, well, I mean you weren't with us um during the whole wax uh 
madness. And um, you probably, you know, you, you certainly weren't privy to what we were saying about app and behind the scenes or our private thoughts to it. But did you have any? I mean, were you as strongly negative on Apple or were you more apathetic towards it? What were your views then? Have they changed now? Uh, they haven't changed. And yes, I was pretty negative from the start. It was clear to me that this mm-hmm. stock, or well, as an investor early on, not to fall for the market story or the market narrative mm-hmm. and to always do your own work. And if you did your own work here, it was pretty clear this wasn't a high quality technology business. They have 25% gross margins, which is the same as a grocery yep. retailer. Yep. That, uh, right. That is probably, that's all you need to look at. If you're only going to look at one thing, you can look at the gross margins and tell that what kind of business this is. Exactly right. It was pretty much an outsourced labor hire business for yes. these large technology um, companies, particularly as they expanded into um, international markets. Um, it was a valuable service for them, but... Eventually, the technology caught up, and artificial intelligence, as they talk about, this great opportunity, mm-hmm. this actually could actually be the thorn um, of yeah, their Achilles heel, as actually does or replaces them and does the job that they were doing. Yeah, I think, John, you explained this really beautifully. Um, you said that um, the job that they were doing was, uh, the completion of the job they are doing was actually assuring their own irrelevance. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, that, that was actually Nick's quote when I spoke right, to him right, about okay. Happen, and that was his line, which I did attribute, although I wish it was my own. But that's essentially the truth, I think, and that's why they're pivoting with great speed to generative AI now, having dug a hole for themselves with their past business, and they're, they're, they're going towards generative AI full tilt, but I think it's an uphill battle for them. And the best way of looking at this stock now is as a as a kind of startup, as a new business. Yep. And it's not the kind of thing that you'd want to back. What happens when a business makes those strategic tilts? Because I we did say we did see the guy, the company was generating legitimate, decent mm. cash flow for a while there. Yeah. And it was reinvesting that cash flow in proper software businesses. <laughs> did it just buy the wrong? the wrong businesses why why did those investments not work out do we do we know why that was i i would i have i didn't go into that in too much detail but my guess would be that when your major clients are some of the richest companies on the planet Mm. who have a huge vested interest in making this work no matter what company you buy what price you pay they are probably going to outcompete you in terms of the technology and it might be that this works out for them, although I think it's a, a fairly low probability. But they're, they're, their competitors are their clients. So unless they can develop a particular niche that people like Google and Facebook and Apple really need to fill, then I think they're going to struggle. And if they do fill it in the short term, there's every incentive for their clients to develop that niche niche product or service internally anywhere and, and, and do what's already happened, which is to have their their existing business undermined by their own clients. Nick, what do you make of what Appen was doing, reinvesting cash flows into proper AI businesses? I think for me that that tells you management's view of the existing business, even if they never voiced that view, their actions spoke pretty loudly. Yeah, I mean, it's the 
or nothing better, I guess, to completely transform the business. The other thing they did too was they bought more of themselves. They bought other competitors that pretty much did the exact same thing. And oh, the okay. thought there was to expand the crowd and, you know, go from, I don't know, 500,000 to a million people on their crowd and that would get better data and there was this whole narrative that they could upsell that better to clients and all the rest of it. Um, but the expansion to AI, I mean, I think we've talked about it here before. This is going to be a really, really tough market, I think, uh, over the next few years. And it reminds me a lot of the dot-com yeah. boom. I think the applications mm-hmm. of artificial intelligence over the next decade are going to change the world. But there's going to be a lot of companies and a lot of venture capital that gets blown up in the meantime. And these acquisitions just might be some of that. Uh, it, it's an extremely crowded space. Appen isn't alone in trying to pivot from one business to another. And I just wonder if pivoting um, is generally a dangerous thing to follow or is the fall of Appen sort of specific to Appen? <laughs> Any thoughts on that, John? Uh, well, <clears throat> there are times when, well, in a competitive marketplace, companies who haven't it can't exert any pricing control over that marketplace. Don't dominate that market. Are probably going to be forced to pivot at some stage, and that then you can see this say with ResMed when it got into consumables or, or started buying software businesses. I wouldn't call that a pivot. It were they were kind of add-ons, and they make more sense. But when you're radically changing direction because your underlying business is failing, then it's a very very difficult situation to surmount. To, to, to move from a successful business that is now failing to another successful business, it is like starting again. And most times that doesn't work out. And I think that the companies that do make it work are the ones that tend to be well-financed and have thought things through. And I'm not sure that Appen exhibits those kind of qualities. There's a, there's a, a smell of desperation about this, I think. All right. One company that has made that transition or is undergoing it is Aussie Broadband. I was thinking about Aussie Broadband while I was reading that article, John, and it struck me that Appen was never really open about the limitations of its own business model. Um, And they were quietly acquiring these software businesses and the narrative never really changed. No. And the the transparent nature of Aussie Broadband... um, is completely different. I mean, they've been pretty upfront that they are a reseller earning reseller margins, but they've also been very upfront that their strategy is then to build their own infrastructure and get customers on it to improve service levels, improve their margins. And they're, they're doing that. So they've been, they've had a strategy from the very beginning. Um, they've been upfront about it and they're using, um, financial success from one venture to launch another. Mm. Um, and I think that's very different to sort of quietly pivoting strategy without being open about it yeah well, well with Aussie broadband if that strategy failed they yes. still got a business yes and I don't think that's the case with that yeah yeah I mean they've got a business but it will be a declining business I suspect Nick do you have any examples of companies that can manage a pivot successfully I, th- I think the most successful one over the last decade has probably been Microsoft no. um, yeah you're right yeah but as John said, that was well financed. Um, the they didn't have a bad balance sheet, and the Windows business though was 
it wasn't actually declining, but it was probably maturing, still was bringing in a lot of cash flow that they could reinvest and sort of could afford to take a gamble. Another one is pretty interesting is what's happened in the car market where um, Tesla's come along and sort of overtaken that, particularly in electric vehicles. But the other companies haven't been willing to make the pivot or at least been uh, late to make the pivot. And it's always hard to do it because shareholders want different things. And without a founder, it's hard to take that leap of faith because you have to give up almost guaranteed existing cash flows for cash flows that may or may not come in the future. Mm. And that's a hard substitution to make. Right. And it only seems to be made, I think, with companies that have a strong management team, but also usually a founder owner that's willing to just take the company there regardless of what the investor community thinks. Well, yeah, I think I think culture plays an important part here. And um, I know we're entering nebulous territory here, but it is important territory. John, you've made the point a few times to me that Microsoft was dominated by Windows, not just financially, but culturally as well. And it was that cultural dominance of Windows that prevented them from um, entering mobile. There were forces inside Microsoft that were pushing to get onto mobile platforms and to create new products. But because that meant disrupting Windows, those voices were, were shut down. And the big change that, that new management made was to change the centrality of, of Windows inside That's the organization. Right. That, I mean, before the mobile phone, because really that was what caused the change. Yep. You know, in the in the in the external market was the move from the desktop to the mobile. Yep. And before that, everything that was done inside Microsoft was done to enhance the predominance of Windows. But once the desktop started breaking down and being replaced, not so much replaced, but mobile became the big growth area, that was an open platform and and Microsoft was running a closed platform. And what it had to do was dissemble all of that cultural baggage that came with Windows and open itself up to being available on every platform. So the big shift for, for Microsoft Office products, which had always been available on Mac, but if you if you wanted to use, I don't know, PowerPoint on a Mac, you'd probably be waiting a year or 18 months after the latest yeah. version came out on Windows. Um, but now they do every, every new version of every software product comes out on every platform. Yep. So that was a big shift away from this, everything built around Windows towards software products that are available everywhere on every platform. But that took a, just a massive cultural shift, probably one of the most successful cultural shifts, as Nick said. Yep. Um, and that was only made possible by Nadella um, being, uh, being replaced, uh, replacing Steve Ballmer, who was just Windows-centric to his very core. The other one I was thinking of um, before Microsoft, IBM made that big change. You know, they there were market leaders in mainframe software and switched yeah. to sort of business services. But again, yeah. that was a, people were bought in specifically for that change. It was a very deliberate pivot from the business and it took time. It was a, it was a yeah. hard change to make. So what is, is there any hope for Apernic? Is this, is this a, a bombed out situation that, that might improve? And what are the signs of improvement you're looking for? If you're looking for any. Um, Probably not looking as <laughs> as closely as maybe, maybe I should, but um, but no, it, it seems very bombed out to me. Um, 
I think they have got new management. I'm not sure exactly where the balance sheet sits, but usually I want to see a few things in a turnaround. Mm. I want to see a clean balance sheet um, so there's no massive risk of dilution, a new management team, mm. uh, an attractive end market, well, growth in your end market, mm. and usually um, the chance to improve your margins. And I'm really not sure if it ticks a lot of those uh, boxes and... It just seems to me, as John sort of said, it's, it's practically a startup. It's a listed startup that's almost had to pretty much, it's going to have to recreate itself. And, and backing that, I just think's you know, a hard task. Yeah, I've also got a checklist for things I look for in turnarounds. Um, the most recent one that actually worked out really well has been Karoon Energy, which has um, done fantastic for us. I think it's a two and a half bagger or something like that. But that was that was actually, a, there was not a, a play on oil prices. It was not a macro call. That was a turnaround. And Nick, your list is pretty much the same as my list. You want to see it, you need to see a change in management. You see the balance sheet cleaned up. And if that means raising equity, then uh, let other shareholders <laughs> bear that cost. And you come in as a new shareholder with a fresh balance sheet, that's fine. Um, I also like to see board changes as well. I think a lot of, I think boards get off way too easy sometimes and management becomes yeah. a scapegoat for all decisions made by boards. Um, Rio Tinto, I think is a classic example. They went bonkers in the early mid 2000s with the China boom, made one mistake after the other than blame management when it was clearly board directed malinvestment. Um, and all those things need to happen. Um, and I, I don't think, well, yeah, for, for me, that's certainly not there. And you're right, I didn't have that on my list, Nick, but the, the A, attractive business, something to actually follow, something to pursue um, or to grow into is, is really important. I think that's probably the missing piece for, for Appen. So not on the watch list, um, I don't think, for any of us. John, are you... you you're, no, 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 not interested. Yep, yep. There, there's very little inside ownership. If, if, yep. if there was any sign that there was going to be any hope for this business, then yep. I think insiders would have would be buying and yep. they're not not in any substantial quantities anyway yeah and the greatest lesson for me anyway is actually the lesson i learned a long time ago but one that um haunts me really is is this idea about following market narrative and trying mm -hmm. to determine real economic narrative and um and i think that's a that's such a nuanced the hard thing to do and when, when the market story is raging it's hard not to fall for it but um but as you say nick you've got to do your own work and come up with the the real story and um, that's an investigative task rather than i think a yeah invest, investing task really yep the, the media aren't going to help you out they're going to carry the narrative that's right that's what makes it hard because you hear yeah. that story everywhere and it makes it harder when it's reinforced by the share price as well I think that's right. Um, yeah, no, to, to be a good investor, you have to be willing to look the fool for a, a long time. And uh, we've all been there. Now, um, actually, let's stop for a break. If you like the sound of our investing approach, but you're not yet a member, visit intelligentinvestor.com.au and take a free 15-day test drive of our membership. You'll get immediate access to all our current buy recommendations, model portfolios, and engaging educational research tailor-made for people who want to manage their own money. That's intelligentinvestor.com.au for a free 15-day trial. No credit card required. Okay, Nick, 
you've been looking at a South Korean business, which um, I think when you, when you first popped up and said, I've got an idea, none of us <laughs> expected you to utter the words Kupang. I had no idea what you were talking about. Sounds like a ramen dish to me um, and just reminds me. Um, ramen is Japanese, by the way. I know that. It still sounds like a ramen dish. Well, you can open up a ramen menu and see Kupang on that, I'm sure. Sure, I have. Maybe I have. I don't know. Tell us about this business. First of all, how did you... I'm always fascinated by this, Nick. I, I, I think this is your one of your great superpowers, is how the heck do you find these things when your universe is so vast? One day, we're going to have to have a conversation about international investing because I find it completely overwhelming. And I've, I'd opened up an international account and I've now just closed it because I can't cope with that level of choice and I'm finding it difficult. But look, we'll save that for another day because that's a, that's a, another conversation, one that probably needs a couch. Um, let's, let's talk about how you came to, to Coupang, first of all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it sort of follows a similar pattern and that's looking at other businesses in the same industry and right. using that base of knowledge and then taking it um, to other countries. Um, so one example of that is, you know, uh, was covered right move, which is, it doesn't take you that long to get up to speed once you know REO. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and Coupang's another example of that. So Coupang is the South Korean Amazon or the Amazon of South Korea. It doesn't have the cloud services business, but it's essentially the e-commerce arm of Amazon um, or similar to the e-commerce arm of Amazon. I first read about the business when it was IPOing in 2021. Really? Uh, and at the time it was unprofitable was growing very quickly like a lot of these businesses and the valuation, I think valuation was eighty billion dollars after the yeah. after the first day of trade. Twenty twenty one, that would have been the perfect time to IPO a stock like this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. Um they were making all the same moves as Amazon did early on. Um yeah. or maybe probably early two thousands Amazon. Uh and seemed to be winning a lot of market share. The financials, however, just didn't stack up whatsoever. They were burning a couple of billion dollars a year. And um, venture capital funded, or a lot of those investors were selling at the IPO, um, all the rest of it. And then, so I put on the watch list. You never know, I guess. And that's <laughs> two years later, it's uh, fallen 60%. So the valuation's now $30 billion. Hmm. But the company is turned around remarkably financially. So it was losing close to a billion dollars in cash flows. It's now made a billion dollars in cash flow over the last 12 months. Okay, incredible. Um, and it sort of And, and nobody that. seems to have noticed. Yeah, that, that's right. And it sort of fits that basket. If you burn enough of your investors, even if the operations turn around, uh, it takes a while for the market to notice or to feel comfortable coming back to it. Yep. Um, and, and this is also made a little bit... Um, or easier or harder, however you look at it, by the fact that it's a South Korean business rather than an American business um, where, where it's listed. So, yeah, that, that's essentially how I found it. So, it's South Korea's Amazon. Now, that cash flow turnaround, that's remarkable. Just give us a high-level summary of how that happened. How did they do that? So, some of it's efficiency. So, they have this massive logistics um, footprint and... They invested quite heavily in the years leading up to the IPO in that infrastructure. 
But as pandemic sales increased and as their own sales increased, the capacity of that um, of those facilities um, came down. So instead of running them at 60% um, for the growth of so they're now running at probably 80 or 90%. Um, so that just helps on the margin side there. They also were making a lot of other bets. So investments in uh, like delivering food like Uber Eats, uh, a, a payment service, just a lot of moon shots, and they've really wound the, those in, uh, yeah. wound those back, I should say. Um, and, and, but yeah. it's mainly just been discipline, and it's been driven by the top. So the founder, Bo Kim, he owns I think, 10 to 12% of the business, Many. Um, and he's seen his stake go from, I think, $10 billion to $3 billion and thought, well, the market's crying out for a profitable business, and uh, well, we're going to show them we can do it. And, and so far they have, and I think... The, the targets they've set out are for EBITDA to double from here. So they were about 5% EBITDA margin, which if you actually look at Amazon's e-commerce business is pretty good. And That's roughly what um, Amazon do in North America or in a really good year. Uh, and they think they can get that to um, 10% uh, over the next few years, which and is the main sort of part of our thesis. I, I love that idea of um, looking for one success and trying to replicate it elsewhere. I mean, just listening to you talk about Coupang, um, Mercado Libra in South America comes to mind. Mm -hmm. India has Flipkart. Both mm -hmm. of those things have seen what's happened in Amazon and trying to replicate them at a local level, <laughs> twisting things a little bit in their in their favor because they understand the local market a lot better. Is that, I mean, is that why it works, um, why, why your, that strategy works in international investing specifically, but finding something that works and going off into a different market, or is there another reason you can think of that that's such a nice idea? I think you could be careful with just using that strategy because because otherwise, it, like, for example, Mercado Libre, you just go, oh, this is the Amazon of Brazil, Mexico, yeah. and Argentina. Comes let's a short time. Yep. Yeah, let's just invest. Yep. Whereas Coupang was actually displaying a lot of things that I thought were quite unique compared to some of the copycats. Right. For starters, they've got 22 or 25% market share, which is um, quite impressive. But also, South Korea is probably the perfect country and, for e-commerce. Yeah. It is the e-commerce utopia. It's one-eighth the size of New South Wales, 50 million people, 25 million in Seoul. 70% uh, of the South Korean population lives within 10 minutes of a coupon delivery uh, distribution center. Yeah. So just there's a lot of things uh, that, I guess, aligned that I thought, well, if you can increase, or they gave me confidence that they could increase their margins. And yeah. Whereas some of those other businesses, um, it's it's harder to see currently. No, I think I think in in Flipkart in particular, but they've had they've been fighting big. Um, bloody battles with Amazon and other American businesses trying to and, and Chinese businesses trying to come in and, and grab market share. I wonder what happens once those battles are fought, whether you might see similar improvements. Um, but uh, just to quickly on, on South Korea, um, John, I think um, you've got some South Korean mates, don't you, who we hear about all the time? Well, well, it just so happens that my favorite local cafe is staffed primarily by Koreans and a couple of Indonesians in the kitchen. So naturally, that was my first place to go to for research. I'm quite fascinated <laughs> by Korea anyway. It's yeah. it's incredible. It's an incredible country. The industrialization of Korea is yeah. is probably one of the most astounding stories in the history of economics. I think. Yeah. Yep. Um, 
China's done it on a bigger scale, but it hasn't got anywhere near as far as Korea. It's an astonishing story. It's also astonishing that the generation of people in their 20s in my local cafe right. appear not to understand how a remarkable <laughs> career story <laughs> is. But boy, um, do they love Kupang. Like when, um, I, when I asked them about it, first of all, they were shocked that I would even know what the company yep. was. Yep. And when I asked them about the service, yep. they just ranted and raved about it. And everybody, their generation, swears by it. You can order stuff at 5 to 11 at night and it'll be on your doorstep um, by 7 a.m. The I next just, day. It's so I can't even imagine, I can't even conceive that. That is so remarkable. <laughs> it is. It's, it's incredible. But the, Nick's right. The density of the population yes. really is the perfect country for a logistics business. Yeah. Uh, because the population, you know, it's it's 50 million people. So it's mm -hmm. a reasonably sized country. But the density of it is incredible. And I think about, like Taiwan, the country they've, they're, they're expanding into, half of it is... I wouldn't say uninhabitable or uninhabited, but it's, it's fairly sparsely populated. So even when you look at a map of Korea or Taiwan, you have to sort of cut out a quarter to a third of the geography, which is reserved for national parks, or it's just so hilly and it's it's uninhabitable. So um, these are just ideal circumstances for a logistics business, far, far better than the US in many respects. Now, Nick, Amazon is, as we know, a tremendous success story, but I think it's now well understood that the success has less to do with Prime and more to do with the cloud business. Is Prime standalone, is that a high quality business that one should try to replicate? Yes, it is. And other people <laughs> and other people are. So Kupang has got the exact same offer, which is yeah. Rocket Wow. Um, Rocket Wow. Okay. Right, Rocket right. Wow is the name. Yeah. And it sounds very Korean, I've got to say. So it's, it sounds like yeah. something you'd see. <laughs> it, yeah. Very similar perks. There's a small video service um, with it, but the main perk is the free delivery. Um, it, and just on that, like 99% of products delivered by Coupang arrive within 24 hours. Mm. Uh, they're the largest e-commerce grocery retailer in Korea. And so it just shows you once... Once you get these delivery speeds down to yeah, a matter of hours, it really expands the actual selection, the range of products you can deliver to your customers. And I think this is actually going to be a story that uh, the market starts talking about with Amazon, um, particularly in the US, where they are getting the delivery service down to a few hours. But Kupang sort of beat them to it in South Korea. They're, now the model is pretty much the quickest e-commerce delivery service in the world. Astonishing. Um, Daniel, yeah, it's absolutely astonishing. Just when I had resolved to swear off international stocks, you suck me back in with a <laughs> with a cracking idea. Well, we, we could hit you up with a few more stats that you might like. So in Australia, yeah. the US, the, the online yeah. sales were about 10% of Definitely. overall retail sales. In Korea, depending on which stat you use, you'd know more about this, Nick, but it's anywhere between 20 and 40%. Wow. Um, yeah, it's it's astonishing how quickly that's growing. That's growing quite rapidly too. So there's yeah. still a long way to go, I think, for this business. Yeah, and I think sometimes that's used as maybe not the complete bear case, but somewhat of a negative point towards mm. Kupang that, yeah. that Korea is uh, yeah has a higher e-commerce penetration okay. than the rest of the world. So therefore, it's got less growth, probably less. But there's so many other areas where these businesses are just getting started. So. Mm. 
at Amazon at the moment, 60% of the volume of product are third-party products. And what that means is essentially Amazon's marketplace and fulfillment services are selling uh, products from other businesses rather than taking the inventory on themselves. Then at Coupang, they're only just getting started. It's 4% of volumes. And this is where you make really high margin revenue um, because you're not just now a retailer. You're just, you're selling the ads, you're selling the fulfillment and the marketplace space. Coupang only takes 3 to 15% commission, whereas Amazon takes up to 45% commission. And I think it's so low just to get volumes onto that platform or to start growing it. Mm-hmm. And once it does, you should really see those margins start to expand as well. So yeah. there's there's a lot of internal things that I think Coupang can do rather than just the overall e-commerce penetration mm-hmm. um, to grow the business. It is quite competitive though, Nick. You... you... Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people trying to do the same thing, but this does seem to have a kind of winner-take-all feel to it. Once you get the distribution down to a few hours, then I don't see how anybody can really beat that. And it does tend to be a winner-take-all market. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things uh, I think you mentioned before was Dawn Delivery, which is pretty unique to Coupan, where you can order a product before midnight and it's at your door before 7 a.m., which, again, this highlights this, how much they care about the customer. In Korea, kids and families sometimes they're not going to bed till you know, midnight. Kids sometimes aren't going to bed till ten o'clock. <laughs> wow, <laughs> oh, it's it's amazing. That's they work. Kids over there can work fourteen hour days with school, after school right. activities, private tutors. It's yeah, they, they work them to the bone. That's why yeah. there's a lot of Koreans in Port Melbourne. Like yeah. The education system has just turned them off the country entirely. Yeah, yeah, I would do the same. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that is that is insane. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Look at us. We 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 business philosophy, everything all all wrapped up together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Come I've on. got one more question for Nick. Yeah. Why is this? Li- why would we buy this through the US rather than the Cosby? Uh, it only trades on the US. Really? It's, yeah. It's only listed. On, oh, really? Yeah. It's only listed. It's listed. Sorry, it's on, on the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, yeah. New York Stock right. Exchange. Yeah. And yeah, that's oh, how okay. place you can buy shares. I, I think. Uh, oh. reason why is so uh, Bo Kim who's the founder um, yeah. he's a South Korean national but a Harvard uh, graduate oh. and spent a lot of time in America and raised a lot of the venture capital dollars that have funded this business okay. from there um, and that's another sort of unique point a lot of the management team at Coupang are actually uh, not Korean um, so the international um uh, executives that are bringing a sort of a different business philosophy than, than perhaps is you know, apparent in Korea, uh, which is you know, another distinguishing point. I did um, once have a chat with Chow Ma, who were, used to be at Cooper's, yeah, and we were talking about Korean stocks. At the time, just, just for interest, I was looking at uh, a company called Cacao. Have you ever had a look at that, Nick? It, Briefly. Yeah, it's like a, the Korean version of... WeChat, you know, the Chinese. So it's an app for everything. And she said, this is just a warning note for our members now. She said, whenever I mention Korean stocks, my team just says, don't ever go near them. You never make any money out of them. It's a, it's a, it's a burial ground for our stock picking. And, and I, <laughs> she never explained why that was. Maybe it was just um, not very, not, not especially lucky, but it's good to hear that they're bringing in external management to give them a different perspective because the Chay Bowls do sort of run the country 
And that was how the country industrialized. And you do wonder how that affects businesses that are trying to grow into that new environment and bump up against these bigger interests. They're very well politically connected. All right, gents, let's leave a gap here and we'll come back for, I think we have a question or two. If you enjoy our approach to investing, but you don't want to manage your own money, check out Intelligent Investors' range of managed funds, including income, growth, ethical, and international options. Decades of research and experience are distilled into these four managed funds with a focus on achieving outsized investment returns. Check out our performance track record, fees and approach at intelligentinvestor.com.au forward slash funds dash overview. That's a mouthful. So once again, that's intelligentinvestor.com.au forward slash funds dash overview. Right. Nick and John, there are probably II subscribers and listeners wondering why they should give us stuff about Coupang um, at all if they're only interested in investing in ASX stocks. I think that's a legitimate question and one we ought to answer. In fact, someone asked us a very similar question. Nick, do you, do you, you got the question? Um, do you want to just summarize what it is and let's have a go at, at answering it? Oh, you're going to have to... Oh, you don't have stuff. to read it out. Just, just give us a, a brief brief account of what it is. What was it again? <laughs> let me, let me do it. Why don't I do it? Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Un- under right. a, a cracking article you wrote on, on, on Ferrari, someone asked the question... Why should I care, basically? So it was a, I thought it was quite a, um, a, a thoughtful question, actually. He, he said, I'm only in, in, interested in investing in ASX stocks. Why should I spend my time reading about a international stock that's not even on the buy list? And I think we ought to provide an answer to that question. So um, let's, yeah. take, let's have a chat about it. Nick, why? Well, I think as an investor there. Best thing you can do is um, always learn. And while maybe Ferrari's the wrong business um, to to have a look at in terms of what you can bring to the Australian market, because we don't have any sort of luxury goods companies or all the mm. rest of it, but a company like Ferguson um, that competes directly with Reese, I think that's well worth your time reading about. A company like Right Move in the UK. Uh, that has a very similar uh, business model to the mm. REA and picking up on what they're doing and what REA is doing and what they're doing different can create some real um, real insights that a lot of Australian investors actually don't think about. Even a business worth sort of discussed already, um, like Amazon. It hasn't made its mark yet on uh, retailers like JB Hi-Fi or Harvey Norman in Australia. But I've I think over the next decade, and I've recently done a tour of their distribution facility out at Western Sydney, uh, which is just remarkable um, and should improve the delivery times um, at their marketplace. Just looking at that business and understanding what's happening overseas and how that could eventually happen in Australia and who that could disrupt, um, I think it's a very worthwhile thing, even if you're not going to invest your money in those particular companies. I like it. John? Well, well, firstly, let me say that there is no obligation on our members to read everything we publish. Right. And we do, we are aware of this psychological bias where you feel as though you're paying for something and therefore you should read everything. Okay. That is not a requirement. It's a misplaced kind of thinking. You, you read what you feel would deliver the most value. Uh, and that might not be stuff that's internationally focused. I think members generally should read as much as they can about international businesses for a number of reasons. 
even if they don't invest internationally. And the first thing is is the point that really Nick made that when you read about international yeah. businesses, it just frames there is the Australian equivalents yeah. in in so much more lights. Yeah. And and Right Move and REA is just a, a, the perfect comparison. Even when you look at say Amazon and Coupang, you know, there is no Australian equivalent. But understanding these often global business models helps you understand things in a deeper way about the businesses in Australia. And I think any reading, especially the kind of research that we do, where we spend a lot of time on the business model, if you can read read about some of the business best business models in the world, which Man. you can now with the, the stuff that Nick's done on Amazon and Meta and Google, we've got, we've got Apple to come, Nick. But these are some of the best businesses in the world. You can see that from the way that they've been flying for the past six or seven months in their share prices. Uh, it's the only part of the market where people have any interest, any excitement. And then you look at what's available in Australia. You, you, you get a, It's like an independent verification on whether what you're buying is as high quality as what you think. Because I think in many cases, it's really not. So I think that comparative principle is really, really useful to establish, to give you a good grounding in the kind of stocks that you're buying in Australia. So that would be my, my first point. The second would be, this is the problem, the opportunity set, as fund managers like to say. We're not out there trying to scour for the cheapest, smallest little company that we can find. We really are looking for the best business models. And a stock like Ferrari, which I think the comment, the member comment was about Ferrari, why, why should I bother reading about this? Well, because it gets you thinking about the brand. Ferrari is probably one of the leading brands in the world. Same with LVMH and the other stock that you compared it with there, Nick. That helps you understand a business like JB Hi-Fi, yeah. I think. You read about Ferrari and think about its positioning, and then you've got this mental model that you can then apply to somewhere something like LaVisa or JB Hi-Fi. It works in other areas of the market. So I think there's an education process there from learning about some of these really, really high-quality businesses that you can you can apply um, locally. And you can see you can see how much better some of these businesses are than what we've got locally. And I, I'm, I'm personally a big fan of diversifying your portfolio overseas. And I know there are dangers to that. I know there are disadvantages yep. to it. But I think just reading this research will perhaps open members' minds a little bit who have only previously invested in ASX stocks. And generally, that would be a good thing. But even if you don't act on that stuff, mm -hmm. you'll still have the benefits of, of learning from these really high-quality businesses that Nick's reviewing. Yes, yeah, so I'm someone who doesn't invest overseas, but I find reading about international stocks um, not only interesting, because you know it is my profession, but I also find it incredibly useful. And Ferrari is the perfect example to demonstrate that usefulness because where Ferrari came from, Ferrari was locked away in fiat trading at six times earnings. No one thought, very few people thought that Ferrari was worth anything. Not, not that it wasn't worth anything, but no one thought there would be worth what it is today. What is it, Nick? Like a $50 billion business or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and what it took was was a couple of hedge fund managers, a couple of um, investors to have to poke around through fiat and say, hang on a second, um, you guys are holding Ferrari. Ferrari's not a 
not a, not a car maker. Ferrari is a luxury good. And mm. that insight that Ferrari is not a car maker, Ferrari is a luxury good. Something that Nick, I think that's a quote from, from Nick's article. Actually. Yeah, it is. That is a brilliant insight. That is a billion dollar insight. This, this is why we do the job is to uncover insights like that. And if you can um, read about those insights in other businesses, you're more likely to uncover them in the domestic market. And I think um, LaVisa, John, John brought up LaVisa. LaVisa is a great example of an insight that's come from looking at overseas stocks. I would never have bought LaVisa had I not read about Zara um, and Uniqlo and H&M. Yeah. Because I, I had read about fast fashion, I, I think it gave us as a team an edge. And I think we were very early in recognizing that LaVisa is not a jewelry store. It is a fast, fast fashion business completely changed the frame we view LaVisa in and led to, for me anyway, it's a, it's a incredibly profitable position for me personally. It's been a huge success for, for II um, to be involved with LaVisa. And it all came about from understanding an overseas business model and applying it um, uh -huh. in Australia. So I think it's incredibly valuable to, to read about different business models. And Ferrari is the perfect example. If you don't read another international stock, read Ferrari. That is a, a brilliant piece of insight that um, a handful of people globally yeah. came to. And yeah. I loved it. Loved it. Yeah. I also think just in, in, in terms of general business principles, we talk a lot about the flywheel effect. Yep. And you only really see that in its purest form in mm. Amazon. It operates elsewhere. Everybody claims they've got a flywheel. Yep. But yep. unless you understand how... <laughs> yeah. Unless you understand how that worked for Amazon, yes. which we missed, you know, I personally missed. I, I personally missed it too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and <laughs> you're not really going to see it in its purest form. Mm -hmm. And then you have nothing to compare with what local managers are calling their flywheel effect, which probably isn't. In most cases, it's really not. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only thing I liked had is just a lot of Australian investors, and we've talked a lot about it. Keep saying, I, I only invest. I only invest domestically. I don't invest overseas. Yeah. But even a company like Lavisa, you are actually investing you overseas. Are. That's a good you point. Are. That's yes, right. That's right. Yeah, James yeah. Hardy, you're investing overseas. Yeah. So, at CSL, yeah. So, yeah. Rio Tinto, BHP. Yeah, and I, I think if you look at our index oh, yeah, over the last, yeah. so only over the last twenty years, it's been heavily dominated by the banks um, yeah. and the big miners, which you know a lot of their operations are still in Western Australia. I think over the next 20 years, it could look completely different where a lot of the best performers are some of these offshore companies that this happen to be listed here. So I think it's always important that you pick up a pattern recognition and you're just devouring as much investment information that you can. Yeah. Okay, I think we'll end that there. We've lost Gaurav, who seems to be uh, banging away on his computer doing something and getting no sound signal. So I will say goodbye from him. And Nick, thank you very much for your input. And we will be back again in two weeks. See you then. Thanks. 